Would you bow with me in prayer? Your word tells us, O God, that the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Would you send forth your word, Father, to accomplish that which you intend through the proclaiming and even the explaining of your most holy word? Would you glorify your name as you send your spirit to shine upon the sun and his finished work so we might behold him with renewed love. And may the mercy you have extended to this ancient people of Nineveh be the same mercy we praise today, having reached the shores of our hearts. For you are indeed a God of steadfast, loyal love, displayed through Jesus on our behalf, in whose name we pray. Amen. Would you please turn to the book of Jonah, and we have arrived at chapter 3 in our four-part consideration of this great book together. Well, time after time in Jesus' ministry, the religious rulers of His day would have been disgusted by Jesus' love for sinners and tax collectors, His generous mercy toward the monsters of society, as it were, repulsed the scribes and Pharisees to the degree that all the gospel writers keep this reality as a cyclical front and center theme. The parable of the prodigal son, sometimes renamed, perhaps more accurately, the parable of the two sons, gives us a wonderful display of God's love through Christ. And given the mixed audience of both tax collectors and sinners, as well as the scribes and Pharisees who had assembled in the crowd before Jesus that day, he chose to provoke the hearts of both parties in that story, if you recall. The father, as we know, remorsefully watches his wayward son take his early inheritance and then squander foolishly the whole thing in reckless living before ending up shamefully working in a lowly job feeding pigs. He comes to his senses, though, returns home with a goal of working for his father, but instead, the father's been watching, watching the long drive, waiting. And he runs, shames himself, runs, as no patriarch would have done. Sprints, finds his son, throws a massive party in his honor. For his lost son was found. The older brother, as you recall, who has been slaving away, in his words, for his father, keeping his nose clean all these years, so he believes, refused to celebrate his brother's return, and instead accuses the father of wasting, wasting the fatted calf for such a monster as his brother. In many ways, the story of Jonah was intended to provoke a similar response among the older brother faithful in Israel, whose hearts had shrunk and no longer reflected God's love, even as we read in Isaiah today, to see the nations, the barbaric pagans of the 
of the world bow the knee before Israel's God. And instead, the default sentiment was, ew, gross. Cannot even stomach the thought. God's love for them, they don't deserve it. Those monsters do not deserve the mercy of my God. Well, as we've considered and mentioned a number of times thus far in our journey these last couple weeks in Jonah, the book contains two main halves, if you recall, that consist of two sections within each half, a sum of six. Then, leading us into the final chapter, that seventh and last scene which hangs out there with so much mystique and mystery, causes us to scratch our heads wondering, what, why isn't there a chapter 5? Right? But that's the intent of the book. This surprising, intriguing conclusion we'll consider next week. But this morning we'll dive back into the story at the point where we are questioning whether or not Jonah is truly a changed man. Chapter 2 details Jonah's psalm of thanksgiving, if you allow your eyes to look back over chapter 2, praising God's character, rehearsing one truth after another, right? Declaring that all who worship empty idols forsake their hope of God's steadfast love. He declares that salvation belongs to the Lord. And while his prayer from the belly of the fish stitches together one impressive quotation after another from the book of Psalms, Can we truly say Jonah's heart has been changed for the good? Unfortunately, we know too much, don't we? For in chapter 4, Jonah will accuse the Lord, as the older brother, of showing mercy to Israel's enemies. Jonah's anger at God reveals just how deeply he wants to control God's sovereignty in salvation. Does salvation actually belong to the Lord, Jonah? Does it? The Lord will draw out these thought-provoking questions in the next chapter. Or would you like to think of yourself, Jonah, as having a better sense of judgment than the sovereign Lord of all creation? And while I don't think Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 is entirely fake or entirely insincere, I think it is most certainly incomplete and perhaps immature. For his very words of praise will be in part what is used to come back on his own head. We're sticking his foot in his mouth in a sense. But if we're reading this book for the first time, we're left wondering if Jonah's death and resurrection from the realm of the dead has changed this man. Perhaps in the same way Ebenezer Scrooge was, was permanently transformed after being visited by the three spirits in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. We may hope the same for Jonah, but we'll have to read on. Chapter 3 then begins the second half, or scene 4 if we want to call it that, of the book, in a a manner that is so very similar to the way the very first half began, with God's call to Jonah to preach His message to Nineveh. But this time, 
Instead of bolting to the nearest harbor, Jonah obeys. So we see a recommissioned prophet preaching in verses 1 through 4, and then we will see a repentant people receive God's mercy in 5 through 10. Let's first consider these first four verses together. Jonah hears God's call to preach to Nineveh once again, reading, follow along as I read verses 1 and 2. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So here the word of the Lord came a second time to Jonah. And the patience of God toward Jonah is incredible to behold, isn't it? We shouldn't presume we all deserve God's long-suffering in the same way we see extended toward Jonah. But consider God's merciful patience with this selfish, wayward prophet. It's stunning. The Lord sovereignly orchestrated Jonah's salvation through judgment and now freshly deposited on the shoreline. Jonah is recommissioned to go and to accomplish the same task, to preach. God's call to arise and go to Nineveh conveys the sense of get up and go immediately. Get up. Let's go. Delay no longer, Jonah. Take two. Now get going. We see in verse 2 does not re-emphasize the wickedness of Nineveh as the motivation of Jonah's commissioning. Rather, in round two here, the Lord's emphasizing the importance of Jonah's simply speaking God's message that would be given to him. We're reminded of Abraham's call to arise and go out from his homeland to a place that God would tell him, emphasizing Abraham's need to hear God's word and to obey, even if it meant not knowing all that lies ahead, even literally where you're headed next. Similarly, Jonah was to just leave his homeland in order that he might call out against Nineveh with God's message on his tongue. Friends, how often do we overcomplicate God's plain call to us to go and to simply speak God's message to a lost and broken world? If you fit into somewhat of the range of normal, you can come up with dozens of reasons why it just doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense. Few of us are expert evangelists. We recognize it is hard. That's why we seek to hold each other accountable in this regard in our home groups. And we take an entire month out of the calendar in June on Wednesday nights to consider growing in our skillful giving of the gospel. But at the end of the day, sharing the hope of God's forgiveness of sin through Christ is not rocket science. Christ has commissioned His church to go into the world and to preach the gospel to every nation, baptizing them in the triune name and teaching them to observe all that Jesus commanded. The message is His. It needs no improving. Will we simply trust a sovereign God to do extraordinary things through His, ordinary, through His extraordinary grace, through our ordinary obedience? No. 
through ordinary servants performing such ordinary tasks of opening our mouths in faith that God will work. This was Jonah's call. Similarly, it's our call today. But note the greatness of the city of Nineveh once more. We've highlighted certain words that that the author crafts very intentionally to draw out our attention. Great is one of those words. Appears many times throughout the book. And once again, the greatness of the city is underscored and highlighted. Remember, this was the royal capital city of one of the premier empires of the world at the time. It was as modern and technologically advanced as any place on earth with a history of violently oppressing God's people. As one writer notes, he says, the city was about 60 miles in circumference, much larger than Babylon. The walls of Nineveh were 100 feet high. They were broad enough to allow three chariots to ride abreast. It had 1,500 lofty towers. The city was massive and massively influential. To build the king's palace in Nineveh required 10,000 slaves who worked for 12 consecutive years. The prophet Nahum, which is sort of the end of the story for Nineveh, refers to Nineveh as a city of harlotries and a city of blood. The greatness of Nineveh certainly represented its immense size, but also the great wickedness before God. And while the book makes clear that God cares singularly, personally, intensely for His prophet Jonah, the magnitude of God's concern for an entire city of lost image bearers enslaved to their idol worship provokes the heart of God to action. I can recall a summer internship at an urban church plant in Philadelphia during my college years. The first week we had a special prayer gathering in which we simply got together and read aloud the book of Jonah. We followed that up by asking the Lord to give us hearts that reflected God's heart for great cities. Great, lost, broken cities. I remember that evening because it moved me considerably. I remember how, or I, I think to myself and wonder how, how is our view of our own city, our own situation, how would you assess it? It's no accident the Lord has placed you and our church where He has us. Proximity matters. The last hundred years has seen global urbanization like never before, with only 14% of the world's population living in cities around the year 1900, and now well over 50%. Projected that by 2050, that number could be 70%. Indeed, for a host of reasons, the world is moving to the cities. And we consider our own city, of the greater Minneapolis region. The 2020 census rated Minneapolis as the 16th largest city in the country, with 3.6 million people in the greater metropolitan area. Minneapolis has the largest Somali, Hmong, 
Oromo, Ethiopian, Liberian, and Karen Burmese populations in the whole country. The Phillips neighborhood is the most diverse neighborhood in the country, with over 100 languages. The U of M has the most Chinese students of any U.S. university. We're home to the largest Cambodian Buddhist temple in the country. We're home to the largest Hindu temple in North America. There's over 45,000 deaf people, only 2% of which would claim Christianity. Over 125 Muslim mosques, at least a dozen of which occupy former Christian churches. It's so easy for us to view our city solely, solely through the lens of our political convictions or inclinations, so often bemoaning various realities and features that we wish were changed. We should lament many of the sinful realities of our own city and actively pray and work for change as God gives opportunity. But as God is intent on transforming Jonah's sinister delight in the destruction of the wicked, so too must our overriding outlook be one of pity and compassion, driving us to see the immense need for the light of the gospel. Occasionally, I'll interact with people who live in other areas of the country, oftentimes more conservative places around the country. And when they hear that we live in Minneapolis, oftentimes they offer a look of scorn. They raise a question as to why any Christian would willfully choose to live in such a liberal, woke region of the country. My answer is typically, well, God made it really clear to us that He wanted us to minister in His name there. And oftentimes these folks are then sort of jolted into recognizing, oh, yes, 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 I was off track there, and and, right, absolutely, we need more Christians in needy places like that. Disgust for sin is essential to the Christian life. It is. But how easy it can be to slide into a settled disgust for sinners in general, such that it totalizes your worldview, which leads to hearts very close to Jonah, that wants to wall off God's love for decent folk like me as it goes, all the while forgetting God's heart to save to the uttermost among the very great cities of the world that need saving grace the most. On this topic, I wonder, before we move on, you got to ask yourself, are you a perpetually angry person? I've had conversations, I'm not thinking of anyone here this morning, where entire dispositions, entire personalities change in front of me as the topic goes to anything related to to politics or the world in general, and a a heavy, deep anger starts to well up where the decency of the conversation is long gone? Are you catechized by your news feed with a daily arsenal of material for why the world is going to hell in a handbasket? 
all the while neglecting to nurture your soul in Christ's call to love your enemies and to open your mouths with more than political punditry, but with the eternal hope of a crucified, risen, and reigning Christ who crushes idols, the very idols that enslave the souls of men. As St. Augustine wrote so many years ago, we are a people with disordered loves. We love things of lesser significance way too much while we love important things way too little. Brothers and sisters, by God's grace, rightly order your loves. Reprioritize what is truly of chief importance to your soul. And just own it. (laughs) Own it if things are indeed out of whack and in need of adjustment. We see in verses 3 through 4, Jonah obeys and calls out against Nineveh. Verse 3 reads, So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was not just a great city, an exceedingly great city. Three days journey in breath. Jonah approaches Nineveh, an exceedingly great city. And not only is Nineveh a great city, three days' journey in breadth indicates the sheer size, although its precise dimensions are often debated, and what constituted sort of the city proper versus its sprawling uh, you know, civilization around it. But Jonah did not flee God's commission. He arose and he went. We should... But should we believe that this obedience reflects a truly transformed heart in the prophet? And at this point, it kind of looks that way. But, again, we have to read on. Verse 4, Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So Jonah follows through by preaching what might be the world's shortest and worst sermon of all time, assuming that it's the entirety of what he shared. We don't know. It could be a condensed, shrunken version that represented more. But nevertheless, what Jonah proclaims is a mere five Hebrew words, eight probably in your English translation, but five Hebrew words announcing the impending destruction of the city. An explicit call to repentance is not mentioned, nor is there any specificity about the character or the nature of this God. It's hard for us not to interpret Jonah's words through the lens of his anger in chapter 4 for doing the very thing God said he was going to do, show mercy to monsters. We can only imagine Jonah's motivation is less than optimistic, less than enthusiastic about any positive response that may come. As one or a couple authors write here, they say, Jonah had just experienced the unmerited grace and goodness of God in his own life. Think about the miraculous salvation he's just experienced. Now he turns right around and makes it as difficult as possible for the Ninevites to experience God's deliverance, a graceless message delivered by one living in the shadow of an experience of grace. Again, we don't know for sure that these five Hebrew words are the sum total of Jonah's message. 
but we do know his heart is not in it. So what can a sovereign God do through a reluctant, self-consumed prophet? Preaching a suspiciously off-track message of divine judgment. Can God still accomplish his purposes through the weakness of such a messenger like this? Well, let's see. Beginning in verse 5, we see now the a repentant people receive this mercy. Verse 5, and the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. So the people of Nineveh believed God's warning through judgment. The most unlikely people in all the earth to believe in God believe God. And if we thought the faith of the sailors was surprising in chapter 1, the response of the Ninevites is astounding. Without rival in all the Bible, without rival in virtually all of church history. As one scholar said, nothing remotely approximating this has ever taken place in the history of revivals. Without a doubt, this is the single greatest mass conversion in the history of the world, at least that we're aware of. We should expect sneers and laughter, or at best, just a litany of honest questions from the Ninevites, right? <laughs> All right, you got to tell me more. Now, what's going on? Who's going to do this? What's You'd expect that. Not at all. Instead, we are shocked to hear no questions are necessary, only contrite repentance and simple faith in Jonah's message. Now, some have objected, saying the Ninevites' belief was not saving faith. It was just the fear of destruction. Jesus helps us a lot here. He clarifies this objection in Luke 11, where he says, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. So these Ninevites provide for Jesus an enduring example of simple, saving repentance and faith, especially since they're they had virtually zero knowledge of God's promises or His covenants or His word or His power or His glory or His goodness, etc. And still, saving faith was exemplified. This is what Jesus' point is, and it makes no sense to contort it otherwise. He clearly states, they repented the preaching of Jonah. So all of Nineveh responds by fasting in sackcloth this public act of repentance. In the ancient world, fasting and wearing sackcloth were symbolic of humility and sorrow and repentance. So from the greatest to the least indicates this complete, widespread, collective nature of Nineveh's repentance. Every strata of society is engaged. The wealthy, the poor. The influential, the forgotten. The young, the old. No one is left out. News then reaches the king of Nineveh. I think that's a significant order because you could say, well, if the king got busy giving his divine decree, well, the people had no option. They probably would die or something. If, as I was reading this week, most of the executing of judgment in Nineveh, ancient Nineveh, was being impaled. So probably people didn't want that to happen. So we could read and say, well, this isn't repentance. They're just going along because they want to live. No, 
Their repentance is first. Then the author says, now let's see what the chief representative of this people does. So we read in verses 6 through 9, the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither be man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Note how the supreme leader of the, one of the most idolatrous, wicked cities of the world does what Jonah refused to do in chapter 1. The king hears the word of the Lord, and what does he do? Arise. Arise and go. Move into action. He humbles himself in sackcloth and ashes. The king issues a decree that extends not merely to every person, but so extensively that even to apply to livestock. And I think insightfully, the same authors write, they say, the inclusion even of animals in this royally mandated fast is the act of a desperate monarch and a desperate people. Fasting and uncomfortable dress represented self-denial. It was an attempt to move the heart of God and lead Him to relent. In other words, they were using every option available. Perhaps they felt that combining their cries of contrition with the pleading of the animals for water and food would rise as one mighty prayer for mercy to this God who threatened their destruction. The king did not stop with a simple plea to call out mightily in prayer to God. Lives were to be changed. Lives were to be changed. Verse 8 states how everyone is called to turn. Turn from your evil ways and the violence of your hands. The violent cruelty of the Assyrians is well attested to history. But now, they actually seem self-aware. Oh, what we do to people is wicked. It's evil. And we need to turn. The phrase, talk is cheap is anchored in the understanding that words are easy to speak when a person wants a certain outcome. But everyone knows that real change is seen through action and attitude, behavior, choices, overall disposition of the heart in real life. This is full-orbed repentance. That is lasting transformation. And this is what the Ninevites are called to by their king. And verse 9 echoes the cries of the sea captain in chapter 1 almost identically. Let us repent, for in doing so, perhaps God will relent. But fire and brimstone would not fall on Nineveh in the same way it fell upon Sodom. Verse 10 concludes the scene by displaying God's immeasurable mercy and grace. We read verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. 
same word is used in Hebrew to convey this idea. When the Ninevites let go of their wickedness, God let go of His trouble. Nineveh repents, God relents. Numbers 23 tells us God is not like a man, that He should lie or change His mind. James 1 tells us that with God there is no variation or shadow due to change. If Scripture reveals anything, it is a God that is unchanging and immutable and completely sovereign in all things. Yet how is God able to change His mind in this scenario? To cease a particular course of action might imply a change of mind in the way that we speak, but not in the sense of God's eternal decree having been altered, but rather the perspective of God's actions within history. God's changing actions within history were ordered in eternity. This is sheer mercy of epic proportions. It really is. And yet, when we consider God's mercy to us through the obedience of His Son, we know the Father did not relent in raining down judgment as the sin of the lost and broken world was laid on the suffering servant, the Messiah, who in His body bore our sins on the tree so that in His death we might live. And in His resurrection, we might know newness of life. God's knowledge of the Ninevites' mass repentance takes no additional work for them than His intimate knowledge of Jonah's heart. Perhaps you personally still are not trusting in God's mercy to you through Christ. Oh, that you would fear the devastation of the soul that awaits all who delight in breaking God's laws. But oh, what joy to know complete forgiveness in God's greatest gift to sinners, His greatest display of mercy, providing a mass redemption that far outshines what took place in this ancient city of Nineveh. The mercy shed abroad through His Son. Now, as we've noted repeatedly, it's difficult to stop mid-story. And yet, how can we respond to the text as far as we've read, looking forward to the conclusion of the book next week where we hope to draw things together a little more comprehensively? But if we just analyze some responses to the text right now. First of all, brothers and sisters, rest. Rest in God's sovereignty in salvation. Rest in God's sovereignty in salvation. The world's greatest mass conversion took place through a reluctant messenger with bad motives. What can we learn from this? Pastors and parishioners alike, we can rest in a sovereign God. Your skill... Your clever words, illustrations, motivational quotes, mastery of a certain evangelistic method, and so on and so forth, will not accomplish what only God intends to do through His sovereign mercy. God, help us to get the message right. 
to get the message right and to faithfully speak the news that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners and to redeem the world to himself through the, to the praise of his glorious grace. Jonah powerfully reminds us that he will draw hearts to saving grace as we earnestly, faithfully, obediently herald the message of Christ's victory of sin and death as Christ redeems church. Secondly, though, recognize the danger of spiritual complacency. I think, I think we understand the word complacency. Now, theologically, we know none of us are ever truly stagnant spiritually. We're either moving toward the Lord and growing in His grace, or we're probably moving away. The illusion of remaining at the same place is probably a lie we'd like to believe. But the the concept we understand, a lethargy, a sleepiness, recognize the danger of this. One of the chief reasons the book of Jonah exists was to provoke Israel as a nation to jealousy and then to action, motivating them to return to their Lord. Walter Kaiser writes, he says, missions is one of the means God uses to provoke those who claim to be His people to jealousy and repentance. The image of thousands of heathen casting off their former way of life and crying out to God in repentance is to shame mediocre believers into repentance and to a melding of their ways. God is no respecter of persons. Perhaps his quote there could have been worded a little differently, shaming people into things. We don't typically say that's a good thing. (laughs) But his point is that mercy to others, to those that are just presuming upon God's grace, as if I've got, I, I understand him. I've known about him since I was a kid. I got all the answers. What of it? While those who were formerly fighting on the wrong side of God bow the knee to his lordship, That's supposed to do something, to work its way into our hearts so that we would say, oh yeah, that's actually what I ought to be doing. I need repentance. Observing what God is doing around the world to bring the nations to Himself is one of the most convicting and spiritually useful exercises a Christian can do in order to rejoice in God's saving grace, but also to keep ourselves from forgetting the power and the mercy of God to monsters like us. Fighting such spiritual complacency can take a number of strategies. We have so many resources in our day. We're able to know a lot more in our day and age by God's grace. Some of you may be familiar with Tim Cassie's Dispatches from the Front books and then also the corresponding DVDs. And just watch or read and and be comforted by God's work to the nations. We have these in our library if you're curious to read more. They really put our comfort-oriented tendencies and our first world problems in their proper place. Read missionary biographies. Become acquainted more and more with church history as it tells story after story of the progress of the gospel through great sorrow and suffering. Read thoroughly the missionary reports from our own churches supporting missionaries. Sign up for them. Figure out a way to get those reports. 
track with their progress as well as their pains and their sufferings. Make their work your work. Prioritize just being present when you know that a a missionary is going to be reporting to us and, and telling us what God's been doing or when a prospective missionary happens to be with us on a Sunday evening. Make plans to encourage, to saturate your heart with their work. Money and time permitting, and if the missionary desires it, that's a big key, perhaps consider visiting from time to time. One of the greatest blessings of a short-term trip like that is the way our Western complacency and love for comfort is really put in its proper perspective. Give generously of your wealth, brothers and sisters, so more and more missionaries might be sent out, even from this church. Oh, that God would do that among us. Some time ago, I remember asking the teens, so what good excuse do you have not to be a missionary one day? Let's put it in that court. Why not go? Right? Consider the greatest work in the history of the world and giving yourself to it wholeheartedly. Obviously, most will stay. A few will go. But why not from our own assembly? What a thrill that has been and by God's grace will continue to be as disciples are made from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Complacency kills Christians. It kills churches. It calcifies the soul of Christians and shrinks our love for the grace of Christ, distancing our memory from our own need for God's love and mercy. And like Israel, let us long for a renewed work of God's Spirit among us, one marked by deep, honest repentance and simple faith, starting with ourselves and obeying His Word no matter how difficult. And lastly, marvel. Marvel at the missionary heart of God, if we can say it that way. In the Great Commission, Matthew 28, Jesus sends His church to go make disciples of every nation, baptizing them, teaching them to obey all Jesus commanded. And in the Great Prediction, in Acts 1.8, Jesus promises to be with His church as they take the gospel through Jerusalem, to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost part of the earth so that the grand vision of creation that the glory of God would fill the earth as the waters fill the sea. We marvel at the power of God's Word in the mouth of His prophet to accomplish God's missionary purposes in a land formerly dominated by evil. And so, should we pray for anything less in our day? Should we pray for anything less in our city, in our communities? Isn't God doing the very same thing in some of the darkest places around the world? China, Indonesia, certain parts of Asia and Africa where the gospel is unknown. And God is dramatically calling out a people for His name. The fields are white unto harvest, Jesus says. Oh, that God would raise up some of us to prayerfully give ourselves whatever that means to take God's heart to the nations. We live in a city about six times larger than Nineveh. 
If Nineveh's size and influence and enormous spread of evil so move the heart of God to send his message of repentance and salvation, should we not also expect the Lord of the harvest to see the great needs before us today? He has already commissioned his church to go. He's armed us with the promises of his presence, eternal rewards, guaranteed results. What's stopping us? Will we learn from Jonah? Or will we become like Jonah? The repeated question we come back to. The hymn, Facing a Task Unfinished, was written by Frank Houghton, the director of the China Inland Mission, founded by Hudson Taylor. As persecution in China began to reach new heights about 100 years ago, Houghton reflected upon Matthew 24, 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. We do not know the time or the hour of Christ's return. Nor do we know how many more God intends to save from among the nations before every knee will eventually bow before King Jesus. But as Houghton's hymn states, it is the unfinished task before us that drives us to our knees and rebukes our slothful ease where other lords beside thee hold their unhindered sway and forces that defy thee, defy thee still today, we who rejoice to know thee renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. The chorus says, we go to all the world with kingdom hope unfurled. No other name has power to save but Jesus Christ our Lord. The church has been singing words like these for millennia and will continue until her Savior returns. So do you think Jesus enjoys saints who sing these words with tepid, weak, distracted, annoyed hearts, more interested in what's for lunch than in rattling the gates of hell with the reverberant echoes of the redeemed? Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, Psalm 107 tells us. For we make a joke out of our theology if we can't sing it with all of our hearts. Don't get me started. (laughs) So would you stand even now and let us sing as the musicians will come to the platform. And I want to first pray. And would you allow every corner of this room to reverberate with the song of petition, facing a task unfinished, asking our sovereign God to use us as His people for the spread of Christ's fame to the ends of the earth. Let's pray, after which let's sing. You will be exalted, O God, among the nations. The kingdoms of this world will all one day crumble before Your mighty throne. You alone reign supreme in the earth and above the earth. There is none like you. You have and you will save to the uttermost. But we pray that you would make us not like Jonah, crippled by our selfishness, but joyfully, selflessly giving ourselves as willing servants who treasure proclaiming your gospel. 
Would you begin this with our own personal transformation and extend through us to our families, our neighborhoods, our communities, our city, and to wherever you direct our steps. May Jesus Christ be praised. Amen.